I'm Maya Pershing. We've definitely not started drinking before we started recording this episode. Never. That would be unprofessional. (laughs) We found out last week that I'm very unprofessional, Kristen. And I'm still just as disappointed as I was last week. (laughs) That was sarcasm. I love you. (laughs) Oh, I love you too. I love all of you. This is wonderful and I'm having a great time. bird nerds and today we are continuing our story of indigenous conservation success stories but i just i can't focus on anything right now so because now i'm thinking about the dog that's in the burning house with the crazy eyes just going that's been me my whole life thank you very much yeah (laughs) that is so many situations that dog is just universal Universe. I think I saw somebody give that to their coworkers like the day that they w- like their last day at work because <laughs> they were like the office is going to be like this afterwards and I was like that is a baller move wow. that is that is some confidence wow. yeah. yeah I'm impressed we should all strive wow. to be so confident <laughs> what's Demi Lovato is singing about this person in her song confidence yes <laughs> <laughs> Completely. Okay, I think someone gave that to me, like about me early on when I started grad school. I think that's like the entire grad school experience is you're just that dog in the burning house saying this is fine. (laughs) Oh, I mean, completely. It's only like later that I think about that someone gave it to me that I'm like, huh, that's interesting. (laughs) Oh, she's here. I'm here. I'm here. I'm I'm sorry. I don't know what happened. (laughs) This is fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. We're just going to keep going. I did have a moment Bird of like, change. should we stop or should we just try to keep going? No. Because I don't know how to keep us on the rails without Jen here. Well, also, Jen's oh. supposed to be talking first. So. Oh, I was like, we should stop. Wait, no, I'm no. Going first, right? Kristen's oh, going Kristen's first. going first. Kristen's going first. Just... <laughs> yeah, I've been forgetting it's cool. Well, everybody always forgets about me. It's fine. I, it's, it's good to know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's, no. It is good to know that without me, this podcast would fall apart, though, because I was wondering what my place in the world was, and now I know where it is. Oh, yeah, you're like the marshmallow in the Rice Krispie Treat, though. Oh, my God, that makes me feel, I'm going to cry, actually, that's so sweet. I'm laughing, but it's not because it wasn't sincere, it was very sincere. Thank you. The most sincere in chaos over here. Yeah, maybe it's um, important for our listeners to know that Jen does all of the editing for every single episode, which yeah. is amazing. Yeah, also, this was, like, her brainchild, and she's oh, yeah. wrangled us into actually <laughs> committing to it, so. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. a tough thing to do. No, it was not, because I literally was just like, hey, this would be fun. So I just wanted something that was, like, fun for us to do in a way to, like, 
keep in touch as we all go throughout the world and do our own things because I love you guys and I want to keep talking to you and all that. I'm getting really emotional. (laughs) This is the emotional sappy episode. Jen, it's okay. Emotions are valid and you should feel them. Thank you. Don't suppress Um, them. Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we were all like oh, tearing up. Craving a Rice Krispie treat. Yep, yeah, now let's be coherent. <laughs> a lot of emotions happening. I love you guys so much, and I'm really happy that we get to do all this together and get drunk on a Wednesday night together. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah, and talk about birds. Well, and- Ashley sits and Nailed and it. pats our heads and goes, "Oh, you small children." It's okay. I had some. Some chocolate lavender tea, and it was very good. Oh, so. oh that sounds delicious. It was. Ooh. It was very, very good. It sounds so sophisticated. Was your pinky yeah. up while you drank it? No. <laughs> okay, but Kristen runs the website, and Maya does all of the transcribing for our episodes, and Ashley runs our social media page. So, pages. So, <laughs> oh, we all like do a, a lot. Busy little beehive. We are. Making honey. Oh, mm-hmm. Hell yeah. For sure. <laughs> As I've only transcribed one episode. Feels good there eventually. Get there. Dude, it's 44 pages. So, like, that's a lot of work. Wow. That's significant. Yeah, it's wild. <laughs> well, cool. Should I, uh, should I jump in here? Yeah, I'm ready to cry more. Oh, my gosh. I did cry several times while I was doing this research. So, research. So, get ready. Um, So I'm going to talk today about the Yurok tribe in California and their ongoing efforts to reintroduce the California condor, which is probably like the most majestic of birds. So I'll start with the Yurok tribe. So they traditionally lived along the Klamath River and the Pacific Coast. Um, If you're familiar with California, they live from like Crescent City in the north down to Trinidad in the south. So it's basically like right along the coast of the very northern part of California. Um, Culturally, they're known for being fisher people and eelers and basket weavers, canoe makers, storytellers. They do a lot of singing and dancing for their ceremonies, Um, foods from the ocean like mussels and seaweed. And then also foods from inland areas like acorns, elk, deer, berries um, are really important to them culturally. And also salmon, which provides a huge portion of their food, which is not surprising because they're in California. Um, Mm -hmm. But so their culture is really focused on sustainability and taking care of the places that they live. And redwoods are also really important to them culturally. If you've ever been to Northern California, like the redwood region, that's right where they live. It's amazing. It's so, yeah, redwoods swoon. Yeah, right. There's not any tree that makes me feel like more in awe of nature than redwood trees. It's like hard to describe. Oh my yeah. god. They make you feel tiny and they're yeah. I don't know the Redwood Forest is just magical. I had never been there until I started grad school and I did three field seasons in the Redwood region. Not in this region, I was like further south, but I've never yeah. seen a redwood in real life. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh. Yeah, you gotta go. Oh, man, you gotta go. Our man. next birding trip that we have talked about for like at least a year at this point is to go to the California redwoods and go pelagic like bird watching, and also like visit my get all the redwood trees. 
I want to see your babies. I do too. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. So redwoods are super important to the Yurok tribe culturally. They view redwoods as sacred living beings, which is so true. Um, and they would actually use, they wouldn't cut down redwoods, but they would use fallen redwoods to make their homes and their sweat houses. And the people who made their redwood canoes were like especially important in their communities. Um, but so in the 1800s, California had this little thing called the gold rush. Um, gross. Yeah, pretty <laughs> gross. And there was tons of hostility between settlers and the Yurok tribe um, coming from both sides. Like a lot of the Yurok villages were destroyed and there was bloodshed and loss of life of settlers and of Yurok people. Um, and actually like post gold rush, the Yurok people estimate that about 75% of their people died due to massacres and disease that were, yeah, prevalent during the gold rush era, which is horrifying. Wait, Kristen, I have a question. Yeah. Um, Like, did Spanish colonizers not go far enough north to have an influence? Because, like, the missionaries that are out in California were responsible for horrible genocides in California. Did the Yurok tribe not experience that, I guess? That was kind of what I understood. Like, I think some of the people who came for the gold rush were Spanish, but I don't think that they experienced some of the things that people further south in California experienced. Um, gotcha. But should probably look into that more. Their website is actually, mm-hmm. like, a gold mine. The Yurok tribe has a really well-put-together website that, like, chronologues their history and culture and, like, everything that the tribe is doing, and it's really cool. Maybe you shouldn't call it a gold mine if you just talked oh about how gold rush is fucked up. <laughs> wow, oh, that just is so happened. weird. <laughs> I just, I, I was like, I know this is not what you intended, but oh man, the timing is too oh, like it's real serendipitous. Bad. It's real bad, dude. I didn't even catch that. Oh, these words. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Anyway, their website is awesome, and you should check it out, but it is not a gold mine. (laughs) That pun was so not intended. (laughs) Um, So where was I? Yes. So, okay. By, in 1855, the Yurok Reservation was created, and they were dispossessed of most of their land, like most indigenous people in the U.S., Um, And a lot of their traditional land is now owned by lumber companies and the national park system. But unlike a lot of other tribes, they weren't actually completely relocated from their ancestral lands. They were basically just kind of like contracted to like a small chunk of what was previously their land. Um, And then, yeah, kind of like Ashley talked about last week with the reservation, there was a really imposed Western education system that basically the goal was to stamp out Yurok culture Um, And this went on for many years. Government policies forbade a lot of the traditional Yurok ceremonies. They forbid them to speak their language. Um, In a lot of cases, children were removed from their families and their culture and sent to boarding schools in Oregon and California. Um, And actually, by 1900, the Yurok language was almost extinct, which is really terrifying and awful. Okay. Now, I'm going to leave you in that really sad place, and I'm going to (laughs) switch over and talk about the condor for just a second. So, the California condor, I don't, have you all seen condors? 
the three not of in you. real life yeah they're so magical it's incredible yeah what a cool bird jen where did you see one so i was actually in big sur for an entomology field course and i just looked up and there was a california condor that was like soaring over highway one <laughs> In Big Sur, in California, oh I had my fucking, like, bug net over my shoulder, and I just, like, started crying. There was nothing that I could do to stop it. It was so beautiful. Yeah. Did you, where did you so see amazing. one, Maya and Kristen? I saw one in, um, in Zion. I was hiking mm-hmm. with my friends, um, on, what's that really popular trail? Angel's Landing? And all of a sudden, words started, like, traveling back through hikers that someone saw two turkeys perched on top of the rock. And I was like, whoa, hold up, hold up. And we got to the top, and they were condors. And they were, like, wing-tagged and just kind of sitting there, like, looking a little confused at all these people who were, like, that's so cool. really amazing. Kristen, where did you see one? Um, I, so I saw my first one at Pinnacles National Park. And yeah, we like came around a corner and one came like almost at eye level. And yeah, they, I mean, they just look like a fucking small airplane uh, just flying through the air. Like it's incredible. Seriously. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It's like a dragon. <laughs> it be allowed. Like what? I guess there's so many condors, not, or not so mm-hmm. many, but like a, a population at the Grand Canyon, and they like know the individuals. Oh, cool. I was going to say the Grand Canyon is where I saw my second condor. Uh, <laughs> that's incredible. Ah, oh, nice. We like, I like peeked over a railing and it was actually sitting in a tree. Like you had to like lean way over the railing. Like my mom was yelling Ooh. at me, but I was like, there's a condor down there. <laughs> Worth it. <laughs> It was so cool. <laughs> Worth it. Um, um, yeah, so the plight of the condor kind of eerily parallels the plight of the Yurok people, which I think we also kind of talked about last week, how there's this parallel between some of the wildlife that's culturally important to these tribes and kind of what was done to these tribes, which is awful and terrible and colonialism. Fuck colonialism. Did we say that yet? No, not yet. You're the first. We may but have, but we should always say it more. Oh, yeah. Okay, so the California condor. Um, in the Yurok <laughs> language, it is called Pregonesh. And, yeah, condors, like we just said, are amazing. They have the largest wingspan of any North American bird, and that is between nine and nine and a half feet, usually. There's reports of even bigger ones, but they haven't been confirmed. <laughs> um and for a bird that can Holy fly shit. in a way that looks so effortless, they weigh between 15 and 30 pounds, which is significant. Whoa. Yeah, that's, that's like a, big a bird. turkey you would eat for Thanksgiving. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. That's ginormous. Yeah. Right, right. So anyway, you should look up a picture of a vulture or I'll put one on the website, but basically, or sorry, of a condor. But they are basically big vultures, um, dark brown to black body feathers with a really bulbous, naked, like red, orange, pink head. Um, <laughs> like a vulture, they mostly eat carrion and they'll actually travel super far to find food, like up to 160 miles to find food. And they soar really effortlessly on thermals. They can fly as fast as 56 miles an hour, which I did not know before wow. this episode. Whoa. Yeah, pretty is it quick. Powered wow. flight or is it soaring? I think soaring. Okay. Mm. Mostly. 
Yeah, they don't do a lot of the powered flight. They do a lot more like soaring on thermals and. <laughs> if you have thirty fucking pounds to move, like God, that's a lot of effort. Yeah, dude. Mm-hmm. Yep. Damn. Yeah, it makes me tired just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Or just flapping wings. Oh, yeah. I can barely <laughs> flap my arms, and they're like Some core my muscles arms? right there. Know, two and a half feet. Is that right? I don't, I don't know. How tall are you? Two feet? What? No. I'm like, <laughs> Wait, yeah. I'm like, like five per arm? Or yeah, I was thinking like per <laughs> arm. Because your arms are like, aren't they like your height? Like your arm span is the same as your height? That's what I hear. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. So I I'm think like, so. so your wingspan is yeah. five and a half feet or five eight feet and eight inches. Yeah. And three quarters. <laughs> three quarters. Okay, sorry. Excuse me. <laughs> Very important. Five ten. If I'm listing my height for a basketball roster, <laughs> that's the secret. Uh, but yeah, okay. So condors live in rocky shrubland, coniferous forest, oak savanna. But basically, what they need is either cliffs or really large trees for nesting. Um, condors can live to be like sixty years old. Pretty old for a bird. They. Oh. Yeah, so like a lot of other oh long-lived species, they reproduce really slowly. Like, they might not reach sexual maturity until, like, age six or seven. And Damn. even once they're sexually mature, they lay one egg every other year. So they reproduce really slowly. Mm-hmm. Whoa. And when they do lay an egg, they have to incubate it for 60 days. Wow. Two months. Whoa. Two months of incubating and, like, taking care of an egg. Dude. That's so long. That is yeah. so long. Compared to the birds that I study, incubation is 14 days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Half of a month. Of course, my birds yep. weigh, yeah. are like the size of one of their toes. So, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. Still. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 60 days of incubation. The chicks can't fly for five or six months after they hatch. Uh, and they will... Roost and forage with their parents until they're like two years old. So, at which point the parents are laying another oh, egg. Oh my god! So that's why they have that every yeah. other year. Then yeah, yep. Um, right. So the gotcha. Wow. Also, that phase of like the adults taking care of the super helpless, like <laughs> mm-hmm. uncoordinated, young. yeah, <laughs> kind of mind blowing. And another reason that I think a lot of species that we see that are having conservation issues. Oh my god, this cat! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so much um, to say. <laughs> that's Olive, and he <laughs> loves these little crinkle balls. Oh Ooh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so uh, she's yeah, been yeah. chasing one around the house and she brought it in and spit it at my feet and then she was yelling at me to throw it for her. <laughs> Play fetch with your cat. What are you doing? You're really letting us all down here. Well, I can either podcast or I can play fetch with the cat. I cannot do both at the same time. Oh, gotcha. prioritizing is hard. as i was we're like watching this happen (laughs) yeah um it just means you're gonna have to listen to some yelling coming from the cat so oh no i think olive needs her own mic 
Mm-hmm. I just felt guilty yep. that I continued to ignore her, so I thought I would acknowledge her. Uh, okay, so okay. condors. There, so <laughs> I didn't realize their historic range was actually like way big. So they're mm-hmm. only in it's a few places yeah. now, but like basically they were like west of the Rockies and there were condors, mm-hmm. which is mind blowing to me. So from southern Canada to Baja, California. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Canada. So their populations oh declined a ton. Um, a lot of it was due to settlers poisoning birds. Um, there was some poaching, so people shooting them. They suffered from DDT, similar to like the bald eagle that we talked about a few episodes back. Um, there was a lot of egg collecting going on, and then there's also like the classic habitat destruction. Um, and more recently, one of the biggest threats to them is lead poisoning, which basically like hunters shoot whatever game it is that they're trying to shoot, and then they leave the carcasses. And there's sometimes lead from the ammunition left in the carcass, and the birds can die from ingesting a very small amount of lead. Um, So it's a huge problem for a lot of carrion eaters, and also, like, a lot of birds that eat fish like loons. So Yes, or trumpeter swans, like in our last episode. So, yeah, little yeah, PSA, seriously. use lead-free tackle and use lead-free ammunition, please. And lead-free yes. paint. Yes. And don't eat lead either. It's so annoying. Second PSA. It's so annoying. <laughs> don't do it. Yes. <laughs> also, test your water for lead. Mm-hmm. We're oh. here for you. Or Should I be doing that? Check your city well reports. <laughs> Most cities have like reports about levels of things in the water and you can find them and check them. But yeah. Ashley, you're incredible and I love you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's probably Thanks, not Ashley. good for people to ingest lead, which we know causes neurological damage. Um, yeah. Like it's doing in Flint, like Michigan. Like it's doing still. in Flint, anyway. Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Condors. So, by 1982, there are only 22 condors left in the entire world. Um, Yeah, so in 1987, they actually became extinct in the wild because the condors that were left were brought into captivity so they could start a captive breeding program to try to save the species. Um, I'm not going to go into the condor story because that's probably fodder for an entire another episode. But basically, (laughs) there's been a lot of people and a lot of money invested in California condor recovery. And so far, the program's actually been pretty successful. Um, The most recent statistics I could find in December of 2019, the wild condor population was back up to 337. And then there were an additional 181 in captivity. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, that's like really impressive. Still need a ton more condors out in the world, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But seriously, like getting down to that few just Mm -hmm. feels so hopeless. Like having, what, 22? Like you feel like they're basically extinct already. It's incredible to be able to come back from that. Because mm-hmm. people brought them all into the zoos right. and stuff, yes. which is amazing. Um, okay, so condors are super sacred to the Yurok people. They're in Yurok tradition. Cult condors are one of Earth's first creatures, and they're actually the the animal that carries their prayers to the creator. 
Um, so Condor plays a really integral role in a lot of traditional Yurok ceremonies, including like world renewal ceremonies. Um, but if you think about it, it's been over a hundred years since condors actually flew over ancestral Yurok lands, which means an entire generation of Yurok people have lived and died without ever having seen a condor fly over where they live. That is heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I hate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? So do the Yurok people. <laughs> and so yeah, yeah. the Yurok constitution <laughs> aims to preserve and promote the tribe's culture, language, and religious beliefs, as well as restore their land's natural resources. Um, and basically, the like the Yurok tribe identified the condor as like the most important species to them that they wanted to restore. Um, so in 2008, they created the Yurok Tribe Wildlife Program, and basically it was created with the goal of determining whether the ancestral lands of the Yurok and surrounding areas would be suitable for a condor reintroduction. Um, And this woman who... So she's the director of the Yurok Tribe Wildlife Program, the YTWP, um, and she's a super badass. Her name is Tiana Williams-Clausen. And yeah, she's been leading this effort since 2008 when it started, and she's still the person who's in charge of it. So she's kind of spearheaded this entire effort. Um, And basically, the tribe is collaborating with Fish and Wildlife Service, which runs the California Condor Recovery Project, and like a dozen other collaborators. And the tribe has done tons of groundwork to try to understand if the area is suitable for condors. And so some of these efforts have included like networking with public and private landowners in the area to try to assess whether there's enough roosting habitat, enough nesting habitat, enough foraging habitat in the area to support a condor population. Um, They've done a ton of sampling of turkey vultures and even like ravens and other birds to try to test for lead exposure to see like what the lead exposure levels are in the area. Wow. Yeah, they've tested marine mammals like seals and sea lions, which actually are pretty important prey items for condors in that area when they lived there, Um, looking for Mm. DDT and DDE Mm. um, to see if those are still present in the area and important, because if they were there, it would probably be a problem. But they've actually found that the levels there are super low, which is really encouraging. Um, Yeah. Wow, yeah. Do they know why that is? Like, just um, less, less use, I would guess. Or yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure why. Yeah. I mean, I think they're comparable to levels, like, in other areas at this point. There's, like, some areas where they're more concentrated still for some mm-hmm. reason. I don't know. There's probably some complicated, like, geological reason that I don't know. <laughs> that's a good question. Uh... Yeah, so the Yurok tribe and the wildlife program has also mapped potential condor habitat. They've actually conducted a ton of hunter education programs trying to, like, get people to, like, get the lead out and, like, not use lead ammunition. Um, And they've also assessed several potential release sites for condors. So usually when they reintroduce them to an area, they have, like, a release site where they actually let the birds go. Um, And so that'll be, like, an important area for the birds as they learn their way around. And so kind of what they've landed on is that they hope to reintroduce condors to Redwood National Park. And <gasps> yeah, yes. I know. I was oh my crying God. Yes. just imagining condors flying like through the Redwoods. Oh, uh, my God. <gasps> that would be incredible. 
Uh, <laughs> everyone just faints. <laughs> yeah. It would be amazing. Yeah, so this would be the very first effort to return condors to the historic northern part of their range. So like we talked about already, a lot of reintroduction efforts have been in the southern part of their range, like Arizona. Um, I don't remember where else they're releasing them. Um, southern California. Utah, for sure. Oh, yeah, Utah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was um, where was I? Yeah, so the hope would be that condors released in this effort would, like, it would kind of act as a gateway to the Pacific Northwest for condor populations. Um, which, like, makes mm-hmm. me tear up a little bit. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so the, their plan is to release 60 condors over a period of 20 years. So pretty slow and steady. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of where they're at right now, they haven't actually released any condors yet. So they're waiting on a review from the National Environmental Policy Act. Um, and that review began in 2017. And it's the last hurdle before condors can be reintroduced into the tribe's ancestral territory. Um, and basically that review, if it's favorable, would kind of pave the way for the tribe and their partners to build a release facility and then release a managed flock of birds into the wild. Um yeah, which is just amazing. And so I just wanted to share this quote from Tiana williams Clausen, who is the woman who is the director of the Yurok Tribe Wildlife Program. Um, and so she said, in a very real way, in bringing the condor back to Yurok territory, we're not only physically restoring our world, we're culturally and spiritually restoring our world. The condor plays an integral role in the Yurok tribe's worldview, and as the condor population slowly rebuilds throughout its historic range, condors act as a powerful symbol to the Yurok tribe, which is simultaneously taking steps to revive its own culture. Aww. <sighs> I love that. Yeah. Wow. so incredible. It's happening. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's so... Yeah, just incredible to think about, like, when all of those layers line up so well, like the ecology of having a species that's so unique and then just the cultural significance too. And I'm sure it's not an accident that those two line up, but yeah, restoring that just feels mm-hmm, like so yeah. powerful on so many levels. And especially the Northern range of the condor is so different from the Southern range, just like the Pacific Northwest, the rainforest compared to the Rocky like yeah. Southern. I think that's why it blew my mind when I was reading about their traditional range, because I've seen them basically in the desert. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. they're like desert birds, but they're not. I mean, they're a lot right. more generalist than that. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, I should add, too, there's a lot of other tribes in the region for whom condors are culturally important as well. But yeah, most of the restoration has been led by the Yurok tribes, so I focused on them. I just came across recently the concept of, um, so there's keystone species in ecology which have a really like kind of unique cornerstone function or role where they're kind of holding together a lot about the ecosystem. And I came across the concept of keystone Hmm. cultures and certain cultures that have such an important place in the ecosystem as far as like valuing species or maintaining certain management practices on the land and that's kind of what this is reminding me of like that effort to restore the condor is really such a part of a bigger picture mm-hmm. that kind of includes mm-hmm. the community as well yeah it's so really amazing that's so amazing yeah <sighs> 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and now that we're all crying. <laughs> I have to talk now. Okay. I got it. Um, so after how amazing that was, I don't know. I'm, uh, so I'm going to take us on a journey across uh, from where Columbus in his ineptitude wound up to where he wanted to go, which was India. Um, so, <laughs> uh, I hate that transition. I'm going to cut that. Anyway. What? Um, no, it was good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you had me, Jen. It was a good one. <laughs> well, thank uh, you. Yeah. Anyway, um, so I'm going to talk about, uh, a bird that was actually really recently discovered. I also have to give major props to Ashley because I last week was in a slight panic about the bird that I was going to talk about, which was the Hawaiian goose or Nene. Um, and everything I could find about Nene conservation was between what that I thought was like very, um, like I had assumed that it was a lot of the information would be about like native communities in Hawaii and stuff. Um, but it was actually between like fucking US white conservationists and British white conservationists. So Ashley totally saved my ass and was like, hey, you should check out this bird instead. So thank you. You're wonderful. <laughs> Ashley only told you about that bird because it was one she Googled and didn't do herself. <laughs> Uh, and I mean, to be fair, we're also like we're supportive yeah, of conservation really. efforts, like generally. Yeah. <laughs> but like, it's cool to integrate. I feel like it's conservation efforts are better served if we can integrate the local people and indigenous people who live in those areas. So, I'm so so happy that you Completely. mentioned that because actually, what I'm going to talk about is a bird that has like been so embraced and has led to such a boon for the community that surrounds it and I just think it's a really inspiring story of like how conservation and indigenous cultures can work in such amazing harmony together um for the benefit of literally like all parties involved honestly um so the bird that I'm going to talk about thank you Ashley uh is the Bugun Leo Chichla, um, which is one of the world's most endangered species of birds. It's only found in a very, very small range in India um, on this conservation reserve um, that is entirely owned and managed by the native people of the Bugun community. So this is a very, very new species. It was only described to science in 2006 Whoa, so wow. yeah yeah and there are um 22 confirmed pairs wow so, that's not very many and that is it 22 is yeah, the number so, of the night that's why it is i know i could be totally wrong about that because that number i'm actually getting from a youtube video that i watched and i totally spaced on taking notes on because i was so enthralled um <laughs> so i could it yeah so it Fair. could be different yeah. i will issue a correction next episode if it is not correct um but 
Yeah, so this bird, also how this bird was discovered is actually really like amazing to me. There was an astronomer. <laughs> Did he walk into a bar? No. <laughs> no, he walked into a forest, actually. Um, so his, it was this astronomer that was on vacation named um, Romana Arethia. Mm-hmm. He was, like, kind of interested in birding from all that I could gather and was just kind of, like, cursorily interested. And he was with his wife and he saw this bird that he couldn't, like, find in his field guide, basically. And so went about, like, talking to the Native people and then talking to the Indian government about this bird. And then it was found to be a new species of bird, uh, this Bugun Leo Chichla. Yeah, so it's... What? That, like, doesn't happen. That's wild. Amateur burner for the win. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. Like, this and Cartland's Warblers, I'm just like, fucking amateur birders, when they know what's going on, they know what's going on. Yeah, dude. That's really cool. Also, the amount of times I've, like, been pretty sure I figured out it's, like, completely not. (laughs) It's cool to know it does happen. I had a dream that I was in this really amazing tropical, like, paradise basically and that i found all of these new species and i was gonna describe them and they were so beautiful and like brightly colored and i was the first one that had ever seen them and i was just like this is so amazing and i'm gonna be like famous but also these are such cool birds and now we can learn all about them and then i woke up and i was so sad like i was sad for the rest of the day i was like "Uh." Yeah. Dude, I totally remember you telling yeah. me about this, and I was yeah. so stoked about it. <laughs> Such a good dream. I remember being insanely jealous of that dream the first time I heard about it, and it just happened again. <laughs> Same. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so this guy, uh, this astronomer turned ecologist, um, basically, like, started... The, he started the wheels turning of like bringing in like bringing this discovery to the native people the Bagun people um who i i couldn't find a ton of information on unfortunately um but they have embraced this new endangered species and all of the conservation efforts that go along with it to an inspiring degree it's it's really fun <laughs> to like hear about this. So they created this wildlife preserve. So logging in India is illegal, but it still happens in a lot of these smaller communities that are outside of like government purview. Um as often happens and the region that this bird is found in is called fuck I had it. I'm just too drunk. Um okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay it is called um i'm gonna mispronounce this hang on these pronunciations are wild yeah it's called the arunachal pradesh in india and it's right on the border of tibet so it's very very far north and it's pretty remote Ooh. and it's very mountainous wow. um the in this youtube 15 minute youtube documentary which we'll link called the bugun and the leo chichla um, it takes you through a lot of what the forest looks like, and it's incredible. There's red pandas and these wow. incredible monkeys, and they had, like, these amazing big cats. Um, <laughs> but they, it's just this incredible community of animals and people, too. So 
The Bogun people, when approached with this idea of creating a preserve for this bird, were kind of hesitant at first. Um, the astronomer that had found the this new species of birds was kind of like all these people were kind of like skeptical at first of exactly what this could mean for them as a community, um, which is really like tightly knit, mm. by the way. Um, like I said, I couldn't find a ton, but what I could find of the Bogun community is that they are fairly small um, and they all all of its citizens live within this one region, the Arunachal Arunachal Pradesh. Wait, is did the community <laughs> did the community know this species was there? Like, what were they aware of it, but didn't realize it was endangered and only found there? No, they, they hadn't even encountered it because it. it was so uncommon. Wow. Um, yeah, which is wow. cool too because like it shows that there's still so much that we have left to discover. <laughs> Yeah. So after the discovery of this new bird, which is so small and beautiful, it's like olive covered and it's got these like red tips on its wings and it's got this amazing like black sort of crest and then yellow orange flame colors um, around its eye. Oh my gosh. Uh, I gotta Google this bird. (laughs) It's amazing. It's so, and it's so small too. It's really tiny. Um, so this community was approached with this idea of like setting aside conservation space for this bird and they were really hesitant but what they did was they uh this person that had discovered it along with um indy glow who is actually a member of the bogun indigenous group um brought in ecotourists from the united states and sweden and the uk to basically show that like people want to see this bird and it is profitable to actually like conserve space for this bird to live so that other people will want to come and see it. Um, And it was a huge success despite the fact that like several modes of transportation broke down on the way for these (laughs) ecotourists. Ecotourists though are sort of diehards about getting to places. So they are. But this is, again, like in such a remote community that why, who would want to come and see this bird? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. fucking nobody. There's definitely no way somebody from like, some white boy from the UK is going to want to see this bird. Right. Um, Okay, but side note, it is crazy cute. It is very adorable. It's a really cool bird. Sorry, I just Googled it. Yeah. It's really cute. No, you're fine. Oh, I also got a year wrong. I'm sorry. I think I said it was just, it was described to science in 2006, but it was first discovered in 2003. So I might have messed up that timeline before. Okay, cool. Um, but yeah, so like this, <laughs> so they had these birders uh, come in and like a car broke down and then another car, like the relief car broke down and then another car <laughs> broke down and the way for them to get to uh, the actual like territory where this bird is. And these three ecotourists had an incredible time. And after that, the Bugun community kind of rallied behind this conservation effort. Aww. And they now manage this forest, which is so amazing. Um, they have patrols that run uh, every four days. They have nine men and one woman that actually patrol the entire 
entire border of the forest every four days um, for this community. And it's absolutely, all of it is community run. Oh, cool. Um, They take bird and amphibian and reptile and mammal surveys of the border every single time. And they also track their movements via GPS. um, So they know exactly what part and they can geotag like, where certain species were found. Um, Yeah. And it's incredible to hear about because like specifically, I'm going to talk about the patrol folks because a lot of them came into the fold of the patrol after hearing about it from other people, because like the original patrol group would come back and say like, Oh my gosh, we saw these amazing species. And like, this is the deer that we saw today. And we saw this mammal today. And then other people started wanting to join and like conserve the forest after hearing about it by word of mouth. Oh, Um, because of this little spark bird. Yeah, exactly. That's so cool. It's so amazing. And they have like two or 300 ecotourists every year. And not only that, they're like, one of the craziest things to me is that like, they're using traditional knowledge to protect the bird and its habitat so there there had clearly been this transition away from traditional ecological practices towards like logging and hunting without uh thinking about it as much especially after hearing a lot of these like in-person interviews in this doc um and then there's sort of this return to ecological knowledge and traditional management techniques after sort of seeing that people were interested in it from outside of the community. And they are, like, the people that are now involved in the project are incredibly protective of it. Like, they have a wildlife a wildlife week um, <laughs> where they host people from all over the region and they educate them about snakes and birds and wildlife and tree conservation and, like, medicinal plants and all of these incredible things where they just, like, have... Um, or, like, groups of students come to, like, learn about uh, snake handling and birds, and they have farmers come to educate them about, like, traditional management practices. So it's really, it's really amazing how much this community has rallied around this bird um, and how the transition away from traditional ecological knowledge has, like, done a full 180 back to it is what it sounds like. Wow. Yeah, so again, yeah. kind of reviving the culture of the That's people secret. along with the species. Absolutely. But, like, they <sighs> didn't even know the species. Like, we, I don't even know if the indigenous people knew that the species existed. Like, there's no information about whether or not they had cultural knowledge of it beforehand. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and with something like that that has been mm-hmm. discovered so recently, we probably also have no idea what their population trend looks like. Like, that species mm-hmm. probably, it sounds like it has a small range kind of naturally. So, yeah. I mean, it might not have even declined. It might have been there the whole time, and there's just not that many of them. Yeah, we just don't, we have no real idea. Mm-hmm. Um That's one of the other cool things is it's not even just like that this bird is restricted to the like to India, it's restricted to this specific region in India. Wow. Um, and every single individual of the mm-hmm. species has been found in this park that Damn. the Bogun people manage. The yeah. most endemic of species. That's incredible. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So the park that they created is called Eagle Nest. Um, 
which I think is really cool. It's just like a badass name. Um, but I don't know. Like, there are so many people like Indie Glow, and then there is now like a ne- a conservation network between the Bugun people and a lot of the other indigenous populations that are in the area to like preserve a network of wildlife preserved. And most of these, I think, like within this region of India, um, about 80% of the land is managed and governed by indigenous communities. Oh, cool. Wow. Yeah. So it's kind of inspiring. Just think, none of this Mm -hmm. would have happened if an astronomer hadn't wandered into the woods and couldn't (laughs) identify a bird. Like, that just feels like so much chance or like fate or whatever you want to call it. Serendipity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say what is so striking about that story to me is like how much, how incredible it is to suddenly realize, like if you're a person who lives on a piece of land, to suddenly realize that like you have an endemic mm-hmm. species there that only lives there, like where you are, and how much that would shift the way you think about the ecology there and like patrolling it. Like it just does change the mindset so much and you realize how unique that is. Um, so I just want to say one more thing, which is that this has being part of this whole, um, land conservation network has really done a lot for species in this area, this incredibly mountainous, like species rich and highly biodiverse area of the world. Um, my favorite story though, is the story of finding an Indian elephant on the Eagle Nest Preserve. Elephants. So... Ah. It's it's amazing, <laughs> but it's also <laughs> it's, <laughs> everyone faints again. <laughs> so I love this story because it came from based on like the storytelling of the patrol that I've been talking about. Um, so this patrol was wrapping up the day, and it was about four p.m. and they saw an elephant on the trail. And this community is so remote that, like, elephants aren't necessarily accustomed to human beings, so they might act aggressively if they see Mm -hmm. a human. So this patrol, which was, I think, two people at this point, ducked for cover because they didn't know what this elephant was going to do. And so they didn't really have cell phone reception. Nobody really, like, knew exactly where they were. So they stayed there from 4 p.m. until 1 a.m. when this elephant decided to leave. (laughs) Just hanging out while the elephant takes a fucking nap or something. Wow. Yeah. That is so wild. That feeling of like having it flipped Uh, where suddenly like uh, you're not the top creature out in the field anymore. (laughs) Yeah. And these patrol officers are incredible. Like they talk about finding like bullet casings out on their patrols and stuff and like reporting it to like the conservation net like the people that handle the conservation network mm-hmm. and of like who's poaching and logging and all of that yeah. stuff but they also talk about it's so funny because like they see bullet casings on the ground and they're like when they talk about their concerns they're like yeah we might get attacked by a wild animal and it's like fuck i personally would be so much more afraid of the people with the bullets mm-hmm. than the wild animals <laughs> So that's the story of the Buku and Leo Chichla and how it sparked this movement of indigenous conservation in India. And enthusiasm. Such enthusiasm. 
Yeah. And there's now like, again, so many people that come from international waters to like visit this fucking place and it's done amazing stuff for their economy and like Mm -hmm. for the community in general. Jen, I wanted to ask you, you said logging was illegal. Like how? (laughs) How does that happen? (laughs) The what I can find is just that um, that the area around the preserve Eagle Nest has a long history of logging and really intense like human activity um and that large-scale logging is now banned um by the supreme court of india as of 1996 wow i can't really find if it's throughout india or if it's just in like specific regions um Um, So thank you everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed part two of Indigenous Conservation Success Stories. I just have a couple of really quick shout outs. Um, One is to Madeline Jarvis um, or at Jadalyn underscore Marvis on Twitter um, who said that we were her new podcast obsession and I'm pretty sure Kristen you said she talks like Gilmore Girls but real life and that's so impressive. Madeline Jarvis is amazing. Shout out to Madeline. We went to college together. <laughs> Yay. Thanks, Madeline. Oh, so uh, we got a bunch of retweets as well. Um, we got another retweet from the bot Women in STEM. Hey, yo. Uh, but thank you to Ooh. at underscore Ella Bot, which is also a bot. Um, Ruth Sharp or at Ruth V Sharp. Uh, the <laughs> Rosalind Franklin Society or at Women Science RFS. Femtech at femtech underscore. And then again, women in STEM at women in STEM SA on Twitter. Um, follow all these folks uh, for awesome women empowerment, especially women empowerment in STEM. Um, and thank you for retweeting us. And thank you, Madeline Jarvis, for retweeting us and telling folks about us. You are fantastic. And we appreciate the... The promotion. I have yeah. one more. I've got one more shout out. Um, <laughs> yes. A lovely person on Facebook named Rachel Miller uh, recommended us as a great podcast. Let me find it here. Oh. It was glowing. It was a very nice. It was a very nice oh! recommendation. She says, "Love oh. it. Funny and educational." I like picking up fun facts from podcasts like this. Maybe they'll be useful in trivia someday. Uh, with the, the tongue out emoji. And then she says the hosts are all genuine and their love for bird shows. So thank you very much, Rachel Miller. Oh, the waterworks. Oh, thank you, Rachel. Social medias. Social medias. Yes. Um, you can find us on Facebook uh, at Flocktails. Um, I have them all in a list here. Oh, what just happened? My computer. I believe in you. Where's my list? My favorite is that Jen always cuts this part to sound really professional. Uh, so you can find us on... <laughs> and we're like a fucking mess every single time. Flock I found the list. Tower. I can do it all if you want Flock. me to. Yeah, do it. I, okay. do it. Fucking do it. You can find us at all yeah. of the places. Um, Thanks, Twitter <laughs> at Flocktails, Instagram at Flocktail Hour, Facebook at Flocktail Hour, uh, Gmail, Flocktails Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, and uh, we have 
updated our website. Uh, so our website is now flocktailhour.com. You can ignore the WordPress part in it from now on. And um, since you're listening, Ooh, you probably so already real. found us either on Podbean or Spotify. Um, there is also on our blog post under um, episodes, uh, we are working on transcripts for each of our episodes. So if you um, do need transcripts as you listen, we'll hopefully have those up to date for you as soon as possible. So hang tight on those. Yes. Um, we also put like all of the links that we mentioned <laughs> up on our website. <laughs> um, so if you want more information or you just want to see pictures and you don't want to Google it for yourself, head over to any of our social media or our website or mm-hmm. all of the cool stuff. We we also have a merch store on Threadless. You want to tell them about it, Ashley? Um, yeah, so we have a merch store on Threadless. Just, um, I think you just look us up at uh, Flocktails on there. Yeah. yeah. Um, we have a yeah. t-shirt currently and stickers with the Mayhem Chickadee. Um, <laughs> and then we have a, uh, a wet-ass Pluto sticker. <laughs> And we also oh, yeah, have we our do. Flocktails logo stickers for sale. Um, and all of the artwork is done by Jen's partner, Cody Jackson. So You can also <laughs> send us an email. We are flocktailspodcast at gmail.com. I said that already, Jen. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. I'm There's so, sorry. so many places. Fuck. But, okay. But, but to our email address... I Everywhere. have not yet received any bird poop puns <gasps> or bird puns. Uh, and also, I would like to note that I am shaking my head in disappointment at all of our listeners who have not submitted a single poop pun. Yeah. Or bird right. poop that so, looks like Jesus or other famous people. Mm-hmm. Or, right, that one in particular. <laughs> like... So send us bird poop puns. And again, we will give you a shout out on all of our social medias and in the episode uh, for your amazing bird poop pun when we eventually do talk about bird poop Mm -hmm. on an episode because trust me it's coming and I'm really excited for it oh yeah we have a lot of bird poop topics to get through so I am waiting for Kristen's list of bird puns Yeah, really. <laughs> she wrote one down. I want to know. I left my notebook in Madison, so I've been having to keep them on my phone this week, but mm. they're coming. Oh, my God. How many more do you I'm have? Not, I'm not saying anything I love that there's two lists. I'm just saving <sighs> them. You won't tell me what designs Fine. are coming. I'm just... So much suspense <laughs> going on here. <laughs> oh, all right. I go, I need to go eat like a loaf of bread to soak up the amount of alcohol that I've ingested. Yeah, so. we gotta get out of here. Mm-hmm. We should probably sign yes. off. Uh, do I say? Do I just say my name, or do I say anything else? I forgot our order. <laughs> just say thanks for listening. I'm Kristen. Oh Bell. yeah, okay. I can do that. <clears throat> okay, I believe in you. <laughs> <laughs> We got uh, this. <laughs> focus, everyone. Focus. Yeah, focus now. Let's breathe together. Awesome. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Kristen Frank. 
I'm Jen Schneiderman. And I'm Ashley Ola. I'm Maya Percy. And we will see you next time. <laughs>